Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Neil Love from Research to Practice, and welcome to Year in Review. As we today we launch our annual series focusing on key papers and presentations from the past year. We're going to start out with one of the most exciting areas in oncology, not only breast cancer, but hormone receptor positive breast cancer. We have a great faculty today, Dr. Stephanie Graff, the Director of Breast Oncology at the Lifestand Cancer Institute and the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University, also the Medical Advisor to the Dr. Susan Love Foundation for Breast Cancer Research. So sorry to see uh, Susan leave us this past year. And Dr. Erica Mayer from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Uh, as always, if you have any questions or cases you'd like to run by us, just type them into the chat room and we'll talk about as many of these as we have fine. Uh, we always put a one-minute pre-meeting survey. If you take that, you'll get a lot more out of this. And when we do the same survey at the end, again, we'll get a lot more out of the meeting. Uh, we do webinars all the time, and we know a lot of people end up listening to them, whether we're live or on replay. If you're into audio podcasts, check out our Oncology Today series, including a recent uh, breast cancer program. We're getting ready to head out to San Francisco. This year, GASCO, GI, and GU are back-to-back -back weeks. We're going to start out next week, and all these, uh, if you're in San Francisco, come on over and join us. If not, all this will be uh, put out live online. We're we'll start out on Thursday uh, with uh, gastroesophageal cancers, colorectal cancer, and Saturday morning we'll uh, get into hepatobiliary. The next week we'll come back again to San Francisco with our GU club programs, prostate cancer and bladder cancer on January 26th. Uh, and then we'll continue our year in review series with Drs. Kropp and Sharma. Now we'll talk about HER2 positive, triple negative breast cancer. Can't do all of breast cancer any more in an hour and even close to it. And then in March, we're rewaking our uh, annual, uh, well, we had it stop during the pandemic, but we're bringing it back, our annual General Medical Oncology Summit from Friday to Sunday in our hometown of Miami. Uh, we actually were launching it with a cool keynote session on breast cancer. We have 31 investigators are coming to Miami. Uh, if you want to come on over and join us, that'd be great. If not, the whole weekend will be online live so you can get comfortable on your couch and just join us uh, virtually. Uh, so today we're going to uh, talk about this. And as we do in all of our year in review series, this is really a three-part program. Uh, the first I met uh, with uh, uh, Stephanie and Erica in the last week or so and uh, recorded a presentation that goes through a bunch of papers. I highly recommend uh, these two presentations. We talk a lot about these there's so much to talk about. We cover a lot of data. Stephanie covered the early uh, trials. Uh, we're going to talk about some of these, but not all of these. This is just such a huge amount of data. Erica talked about uh, metastatic disease. Again, a whole bunch of papers. We'll pull a few of those slides. But here, we're, tonight, we're just going to brainstorm a little bit about what it all means and not worry so much about the slides. So before we get started, uh, Eric, I got to offer my condolences to you uh, for losing your uh, head coach there, uh, Bill Belichick. I know you, you all. We actually the last webinar we did in the end of December was with Rich Stone, so I got to call him up, see what he thinks about that. But uh, any comments on uh, getting a new head coach? Oh gosh, we are we are definitely in mourning in New England about this. Um, but as coach says, we will do our jobs. And hopefully uh, we'll bring back, I don't know, Mike Rabel. He used to play for the Pats. 
That's my yeah, that's, that's my cool prediction. Idea. So, uh, and I I know Stephanie, you're a Chiefs fan. I got to say, uh, Saturday, uh, Sunday, yeah, Saturday night, we're playing you guys. So uh, good luck, but uh, we'll see what happens. All right, I want to start out just before we kind of get into the papers. Let's pick your brain a little bit about the endocrinology and pharmacology of hormonal therapy of breast cancer. We've come so far, and uh, I want to just bring up a paper too in that regard. But just, uh, you know, so many things going on. Uh, Erica, used to be there was really not that much exciting to talk about. Now, you know, we can barely get through this in an hour. Any just general thoughts for, from your viewpoint? What were some of the highlights of this past year for you? Well, I mean, it's been an incredible year, and it really feels like the pace of evolution in breast cancer has picked up substantially. We have uh, new data coming to us with every meeting cycle, um, even looking at older trials being reevaluated. We learn something every time. Um, we've had uh, new agents being approved, including Capivacertib most recently, um, and we have new results that continue to modify our treatment paradigms. Something that I find really interesting is that you know, with all of these new drugs, as we bring them into the clinic, we're learning more about toxicity and tolerability. And ultimately, that may be the, the key differentiator for us, particularly when we have so many choices available. But, you know, ultimately, I think what's been fantastic is with all these new tools and strategies, this is just going to benefit our patients. And I think we're seeing people do better than ever before. So, uh, Stephanie, uh, this is kind of a typical graphic that you see about mechanism of action. I don't know whether it's just me or other people. I have a hard time kind of wading through these things. And I want to show both of you a comment, actually, that one of our faculty made at the San Antonio meeting. But first, I want to start out with this question. I want the audience to think about it, because one of the things that we got into in San Antonio is what kind of biomarkers do you need to treat a patient or a second-line therapy for metastatic disease? So a patient who has disease progression on CDK4-6 uh, we got PIK3CA, ESR1, AKTP10. Stephanie, do we need all or just some of this uh, to treat patients? I think right now we need all of these. I think we need PIK3CA, ESR1, and AKTP10. Um, of course, Capovacertib is approved for not just PIK3CA, but also AKT and P10. So uh, important to get all three of those to select uh, Capovacertib and Apolisib. And then ESR1 uh, opens up options for Elicestrant right now. I think we'll continue to see that category of approvals expand. And, uh, you know, what we want is the most number of tricks in our bag that we can pull from. So uh, when we identify patients that have numerous options here, it just means that we have more drugs we can choose from. So I guess it's going to be a race for how many biomarkers we need. I mean, you know, as mentioned, we're doing this program in a, a GE a cancer at, uh, at uh, G, uh, ASCO GI. You know, there they got Claude and FGFR, and they're triplet, uh, or moving in that direction. So, Erica, I want to ask you specifically about a comment I heard at this meeting we did with this great faculty, uh, which I hadn't heard before, and I didn't initially, and I still don't completely understand. I'm going to ask you to explain it. This is uh, Dr. Erica Hamilton. 
there's a lot of preclinical activity that not all the SERDs are equal. And, and that should make sense to us because we see different side effect profiles. Some have bradycardia, some seem to have a little bit more GI toxicity. Um, Elicestrin is a little bit more of a SERM uh, than a SERD uh, compared to some of the other SERDs. And so I think as we get smarter with these, we'll realize that there's certain patient populations where one may be a little bit better for a patient than other. So, Eric, I mean, it's kind of easier to understand how, you know, taking somebody's ovaries out or, you know, uh, using an AI works. But when you get into tamoxifen, if, you know, serum or the surge, to me, and here, it, you know, she's saying there's, it's kind of a continuum, et cetera. What's your vision for this, Erica? Well, you know, it's it's a really interesting comment from Dr. Hamilton. And, you know, when we think about the... Um, kind of endocrine therapies in development, there's sort of a, a spectrum of ones that behave more like SERMs, so selective estrogen receptor modulators, to ones that perform more like SERDs, selective estrogen receptor degraders. Drugs that are more SERM-like, and we think of tamoxifen as a kind of key example of that, honestly do have a little bit of a better side effect profile, um, and that can include LSSTRANT, which verges a little bit more in that category. We have lazofoxifene, which is a drug in development, uh, uh, bazofoxifene, which is actually approved for osteoporosis. Some of these drugs treat osteoporosis. They help patients feel better. So I'm really interested in de further development of the SERMs because I think that you know they, they will be effective and hopefully really well tolerated. On the more SERD side, we do see a really interesting spectrum of side effects, including for some of the drugs, some GI toxicity, like some mild nausea or some diarrhea. And then we have seen this um, interesting signal of cardiac toxicity with asymptomatic, relatively mild bradycardia that's been shared by a few of these drugs. And how a drug that's degrading the estrogen receptor causes bradycardia is something that, you know, I think we're still trying to, to figure out the kind of estrogen cardiac connection. Um, we also do see some vision changes on some of these drugs, something called photopsia, which is um, kind of seeing halos around lights or seeing tracking around lights, not something that creates a vision problem. You can still see fine. Your, your vision quality and acuity is the same, but it is something that patients taking these drugs will notice. So, you know, I, I, I think that there's a whole spectrum of, of these agents. They're not all one agent. And as they are further developed, we're going to learn more not only about kind of efficacy, but also what the tolerability is and, and the spectrum of side effects. So to kind of demonstrate how much things are changing, um, I wanted to talk about another thing that happened before we sort of jump into uh, these papers and all, because when we got to their, uh, the first, this first meeting and uh, Virginia Kaplamani, who's the head of the San Antonio meeting, was there. And we were in the, you know, I always meet with the faculty ahead of time of the meeting. And the faculty were in there telling me this wild story about how a press release had come out, I think it was that day, actually, or no, the day before, uh, on a trial, this trial, the Innovo 120 trial, triplet therapy. I loved it that we were actually in the Marriott River Center. We were in the same room that the attack trial was presented in 2000, I think, three, where they showed that, you know, uh, uh, anastrol is a little better in tamoxifen, but, but most importantly, that tamoxifen plus anastrol was no better. And now here we are 20 years later talking about triplets, and they somehow they pulled off getting this thing uh, presented in three days. Any thoughts, uh, Stephanie, in terms of, you know, where things are moving? You know, I, we talk about quadruplet therapy and myeloma nowadays. Any comments on this trends and the challenge of multiple agents? And also, very interestingly, they chose to use Palbo. You know, so this is 
you know, I, I guess a sort of a AKT, PI3K type agent, uh, pick three mutant was required to go in there. But then they combined it not only with fulvestrin, but with palba, which I thought was very interesting, I guess, because it, you know, better tolerated. Any thoughts, uh, Stephanie, about whether or not maybe there's going to be a future for palba, but in combination? Yeah, I tell patients regularly right now in my clinical practice that I feel like we're in the messy middle of estrogen receptor positive metastatic breast cancer because, you know, the SIRDs, elicestrant, and and so many others, capovacertib, immunolestrant, are um, uh, emerging. We still don't know how to combine uh, different agents. Apolisib and capovacertib still need to uh, start uh, building data around combinations with other agents beyond fulvestrant, uh, who can still get fulvestrant as a single agent, um, whether or not patients should have extended CDK4-6 inhibitor. There's just so many unanswered questions for patients that have both PIK3CA and ESR1 mutations. How do we sequence those agents? Should we combine those agents? Um, there's just lots of unanswered questions right now. And so I think that we will see more triplet therapies, we will see these agents move to first line. And um, I, I think where we are right now is not where we end up five or 10 years from now. And this is, you know, a very high risk, highly selected patient population that all had PIK3CA mutated uh, breast cancer. We still need to learn more about their ESR1 status. I know Dr. Mayer is going to review that more in subsequent conversation today. So, uh, yeah, then, you know, I'll add in there, you know, four days on, three days off for capivacertib. There's a, another, you know, kind of twist on maybe trying to top, improve tolerability. So what about this study, um, Eric? I mean, it was positive, pretty good hazard rate for uh, PFS, 0.43 in the first-line yeah, setting. I, so, I, th you know, this was really the the in some ways, the splash and su surprise of San Antonio, because I think we weren't expecting to see this data presented in. And uh, I'm just grateful that the powers that be allowed this to be presented for us. By the way, I, I think that room in the Marriott River Center has probably seen more breast cancer research than almost any place <laughs> on earth. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, <laughs> Actually, the, I, that's the only hotel I've ever stayed at in San Antonio. I think I've been there since the third one, and that's the only hotel I've stayed at. <laughs> Um, so, oh, yeah. you know, what I think is interesting about the Inavo study is that th this really enrolled a very high-risk group of patients. First of all, these were patients who recurred either during their adjuvant aromatase inhibitor or not long after, and all the patients um, had a PIK3CA mutation. So, you know, of our first-line hormone receptor-positive HER2-negative metastatic patients, these are really much more high-risk than the, I'll call it, usual person. Um, and what what we see here is the the triplet, which is building off of what in many situations is standard of care to, to receive fulvestrin and CDK4-6 inhibitor, we see a really substantial difference here. You know, this is more than a doubling in progression-free survival, seven months to 15 months. And we see that that's preserved at the landmarks up to 18 months of observation with a hazard ratio of 0.3. So, you know, I, I think if we think back to the first line CDK4-6 studies and the PFS scene there, usually what we're looking at is something like 12 months to 24 months. This is less. And I think this 
putting the control arm at seven months is really telling us that this is a very high risk population and that we are you know helping people do much better a couple other points if you look at the the separation in these curves this happens pretty early on and so the drop-off in the control arm is happening just by the second month um, so immediately we're having an effect here improving outcomes. And also, you know, for these patients, th this is a group where perhaps we might be moving closer to chemotherapy with, with what we're seeing in terms of resistance. And by using the triplet, we are most likely pushing out that moment in time when a patient would have to flip over to get chemotherapy. So I, I felt really encouraged seeing this. And it's really interesting comment about palbociclib because I, I think in the past couple of years, many of us have moved away a little bit from use of palbociclib, but it's so important to remember that this is an extremely well-tolerated CDK4-6 inhibitor. Of the three, I, th I think it is the best tolerated. And for that reason, I think it does combine well with here uh, a PI3 kinase inhibitor. We've seen in the PACE study that it combines well with uh, immunotherapy. And, you know, there, there may be a future for palbociclib as part of these combinations. So I want to get into some other papers, but just to point out, and I think you know, I see more of this coming in the future too. Look at the control arm. Uh, at, at a year, uh, almost 70% have relapsed. And then by 18 months, almost 80%. And so there are a lot of patients who do not do well in the second-line endocrine therapy. It would be great to know who they were in advance, maybe even skip second-line therapy or hopefully get something better. And, of course, the whole issue of tolerability with these agents is we'll see how that develops. In any event, let's uh, talk about some of the other papers and particularly the issue of earlier-stage disease, Stephanie that you uh, reviewed, and certainly two of the papers that got the most attention this year when I heard they were going to be presented, I was like, yay, this sounds really, because we've been hearing about this in lung cancer. Lung cancer is like about a year ahead, maybe two years ahead of you, I think. In any event, uh, yay, IO in breast cancer to start with, and now neoadjuvant setting. But what is the bottom line here, Stephanie? I don't want to go through all the slides. You just tell me what was your take on what they saw. What do you think it means? So I think both in the Checkmate 7FL study and in the Keynote 756 study, what we saw was that combination of immunotherapy in hormone receptor positive early stage breast cancer is a future direction that we can all expect to come to a clinic near us for patients. It's not, I don't think it's going to be approved in the next three months. Um, I think we're probably waiting for those trials to show event-free survival, um, given the toxicity profile. Um, but I think the most important takeaway is these are high-risk patients. Both trials selected patients who had grade three tumors, lymph node positive disease, or who were what we call uh, hormone receptor low, ER uh, expression of one to 10%. And again, just like Dr. Mayer was pointing out earlier with the uh, ANIVO uh, trial, that, that's not your usual estrogen receptor positive breast cancer patient. That's not your 70 year old with an oncotype of 16, right? That's, that's your, that's your, 35-year-old with a KI-67 of 70% um, on their estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. And so I, I think that um, there are this small group of very biologically aggressive estrogen receptor positive breast cancers that adding immunotherapy is going to be worth the associated toxicity that comes with adding that therapy. So, Erica, I'm curious, of course, at this point, what we're seeing is an increase in uh, PATH-CR rate. 
I mean, pretty low to start. Even even when it increases, it's still only around twenty five percent. So it's still nothing like uh, HER two positive disease or triple negative disease. Doesn't it looks not too much to separate these two out? What's it going to take for you to want to do this in your practice or the FDA to approve it? In lung cancer, when it came out, there was a PFS advantage. Do you think, and they that it got approved? Do you think that's what's going to happen here? Well, uh, you know, I. I found these presentations really interesting um, looking at the subsets of trying to parse out among the patients accrued to the study who was having the biggest benefit. And when the um, in looking at the kind of clinical pathologic features and biomarkers, it looked like the patients who were um, PD-L1 positive with the highest level, the um, CPS score of 10 or 20 or more, were getting a lot of benefit from the IO with PATH-CR rates that honestly approach what we see with chemotherapy and the other subsets of breast cancer. Also patients who were ER low. And, you know, we, we all have these people in clinic who have these ER scores, you know, in the single digit range, and they're technically positive. They're not technically triple negative, but you kind of feel like biologically they more resemble triple negative than they do our traditional luminal breast cancers. And those patients also received the greatest benefit in terms of high PCR rate. Interestingly, KS67 didn't correlate, which I find a little puzzling, but that, that did, was not a strong signal. Um, we, we aren't going to see the EFS from the NEVO study, unfortunately, just due to the changes in trial design, but we do look forward to seeing this from 756. And I think when we see EFS, if it does correlate with PCR or if there's other ways that we can use biomarkers to create kind of a clinical signature of, of who are good candidates, I hope that will be attractive enough to get approval for ER positive disease. Um, and, you know, I think my takeaways from this really have to do with that low ER group. And, you know, I, I am very tempted now to expand my use of, of preoperative pembrolizumab to include those patients who, you know, honestly, I think they are much more triple negative-like in practice and try to extend the benefits of pembrolizumab to that group. So before I go to the next slide, let me ask you, uh, Erica, do you think you see a role in trying to sort these things out of genomic assays like Oncotype? Um, I I don't recall that Oncotype itself was necessarily predictive of this. You know, these are all patients for whom we want to give chemotherapy, so we're sort of beyond Oncotype at that moment. I don't think either study has reported Oncotype, and I don't think either study required that for eligibility. Presumably, both would be able to calculate an inferred oncotype score. I, I do agree with Erica that I think that either TILS or PDL one is going to help us best select who should get these. I, I pray that Keynote 756 gives us that data. It has not yet been um, uh, reported and broken down in that manner. Yeah, I was thinking about genomic assays, not just a, you know, not so much about the issue of whether to give chemo, but more maybe there's going to be something in there that might, you were mentioning a low ER, you know, maybe something there that may be more than just measuring individual factors. But that's lead into a couple other papers that Stephanie covers. And one was the role of neoadjuvant uh, genomic assays, Oncotype. We did a survey of investigators uh, right before the pandemic, I think in 2019, or about a third of them were using uh, genomic assays, mainly Oncotype, in the neoadjuvant setting. Uh, Stephanie, anything you want to say about, and not, there have been data before this suggesting that it could be helpful. I don't know how often you uh, do this, but uh, any thoughts about uh, the role of Oncotype in uh, the neoadjuvant setting, Stephanie? 
Yeah, so I think this paper was published uh, this last year in Breast Cancer Research and Treatment, and I think it just really highlights that using Oncotape DX on the biopsy specimen in hormone receptor positive early stage breast cancer is a valuable tool that can select patients that are good candidates for neoadjuvant um, chemotherapy versus neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, or who maybe you're going to give neoadjuvant chemotherapy to or take straight to the operating room for surgery. Um, you know, obviously, this was something that I was doing regularly during the pandemic because there was a little bit more um, complication in managing our OR and our volume and getting getting patients managed safely at a time when when hospital uh, social distancing was at a peak. Um, and now that that's opened up again, although maybe maybe not for long as we see COVID numbers surge, um, the um, we're back to using Oncotype largely again in the, the post-operative setting. But I think that this data is really reassuring that Taylor X and RX Bonder um, endpoints are are equally valid when done on a biopsy specimen in that sort of neoadjuvant space. And you can use the same endpoints to inform your practice. So another paper that Stephanie talked about, Erica, actually came out of your place. It's kind of a quality improvement type of thing. It was really cool. Hal Burstein was on one of our San Antonio things and was talking about this. I guess it, uh, the story was that you all had these uh, established sort of guidelines for when archetype should be used, which is what you all use. And then you went back and saw what people are actually doing. And you found that, I guess your initial guidelines was not to send it less than one centimeter and not to send it over age 65, which is kind of interesting. And then you saw a whole bunch of your people were ordering it and getting high values in some cases for small tumors. And of course, you know, there are women over 65 who might want to think about chemotherapy. Any thoughts about this? Uh, I love the way you approached it. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is a very nice study that was led by one of our advanced fellows, Dario Trapani, um, who's very interested in quality work. And so he was looking at our kind of internal guidelines for reflex testing. We've, we, as a group, came up with internal guidance that we wanted to use with our pathologist to help streamline the process. You know, we have delays in clinic where you have to, if you have to wait to see MedOnc after surgery and then decide about Oncotype and then it's a further delay. So here at, at our institution, if it meets certain criteria, the pathologist will just auto send Oncotype. So that helps get that result back faster. And, you know, we, we had to draw some guidance in terms of situations when we thought it was appropriate and situations where it was more uh, provider discretion. So for example, small cancers um, generally don't need an Oncotype. Um, so that was more uh, per, uh, provider discretion. I think what came out of this that was interesting is that in the older patients, you know, we definitely do send Oncotype in older patients, but the reasons for sending it tend to be quite specific. And we really, in those situations, are trying to get people out of chemotherapy and trying to not have to give chemotherapy. And so, um, you know, we what was seen was that in the patients who were older, who for whom it was sent, there was uh, a little bit more um, higher scores that were observed. And I think that um, kind of reflects uh, some of the patient selection for who was uh, picked in this sort of provider preference. But in general, I'd say using the reflex oncotype has been wonderful in our practice just because it, ju it just helps reduce all of the kind of back and forth communication to get things done. Um, we also at Dana-Farber were very early adopters of, of Oncotype back in 2015 when it first came out, or sorry, 2005. It's been 15 years. And um, 
you know, and, and really have embraced the use of Oncotype, particularly in our older population. And there's very nice work from um, one of my colleagues, Mike Hassett, that was came out not long after Oncotype, showing definitively that, you know, we use less chemotherapy in older patients with the use of Oncotype. So, you know, I, I think that using reflex testing is a really nice way to make sure the test gets done and that it can be used appropriately. You just pushed the memory. I actually interviewed Soon Paik from the NSABP the night before he presented <laughs> <laughs> the first thing. All right. Well, here's the big one, folks. We've been, you know, we just do this all the time. We just sort of take the temperature and see where we are. Choice of CDK in the first line setting. Uh, we saw some more data over the last few months, but uh, ESMO and SABCS. Bottom line, how do you think through choice of CDK with Stephanie? So um, the, the snapshot you've got up right now is looking at it in the adjuvant setting. Of course, right now, our only drug approved is abemaciclib, so the choice is easy. Um, we did get updates this year on um, Natalie, which is looking at ribociclib um, that shows early separation of the curves, a little bit lower risk population. Some patients with lymph node negative disease were included in Natalie as well, so the separation of the curves is a little uh, less wide than it is with Monarch E at the same time point um, with abemaciclib. And I think that that reflects the slightly lower risk population. Um, of course, we're waiting for approval or further follow-up with ribociclib in that early stage breast cancer space. I'm hopeful that we'll soon have a second approval, which will give us some more options uh, to personalize care and engage in shared decision-making with our patients. For the most part, I'm probably going to be sticking with abemaciclib for my high-risk patients given the um, just the weight of the evidence and um, having ribociclib when it's approved for patients that are intolerant or patients with that lower risk disease, again, based on the evidence. Yeah, so sorry, I, th I got my brain fog there. I thought we were on metastatic, <laughs> but yeah, we are. We are. Uh, and the question there I'm really curious about, Erica, is the bar to use CDK in general? And it, it's kind of interesting that we keep looking for high-risk patients, and I can understand, you know, they're going to get greater benefit, but I've been kind of surprised it doesn't seem to filter down, you know, with, with the earlier adjuvant therapies, tamoxifen, AI, et cetera, we, you know, maybe the hazard rate gets established with higher-risk patients, but if you want to calculate what the absolute benefit is, you take the hazard rate, apply it. If it looks like the risk benefit's, you know, positive, which it often is with uh minimal benefit with endocrine therapy, you know, consider it. Any thoughts about is that where, you know, now we're seeing with RIBO the same effects and the no negative. Any thoughts where this is going to land, uh, Eric, in terms of, you know, the bar to consider treatment or financial considerations as well? Yeah, I mean, you've just brought up so many important points that we have to think about when we're considering uh, an adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitor. My impression is that um, our use of this category of drugs in the adjuvant setting has been increasing as we get further data and further confirmation. When the monarchy data first came out, you know, we, we did not have long-term follow-up yet. Um, we know abemaciclib definitely has side effects, including uh, diarrhea and fatigue and neutropenia with all these agents. Um, and, you know, there were concerns also about, you know, is this restricted to just a high KI-67 population or is it more broadly applicable? Um, you know, I think as we've seen greater maturity of monarchy, it's so interesting. And we can see um, when we follow the Kaplan-Meier plot that the um, 
uh, overall benefit from the drug continues to increase in the years further that the trial is being followed. I find this fascinating because the drug stopped at two years and yet the benefit continues to grow in this carryover effect. What's happening while people are taking a bemocyclib that's changing the milieu of the cancer such that when the drug is done, the benefit enlarges? Is there some sort of immunologic effect? I'm not sure we know, but I find that data really compelling. And I think as we've seen that, that has provided greater confidence and interest in using abemocyclib as broadly as we can within the indication. Um, I agree with Dr. Graff. I really welcome the, the Natalie data, you know, looking at a second CDK4-6 inhibitor with a positive signal. And I think what's so important about Natalie is that it's this broader population of people that's including, you know, everyone except like the, the most um, kind of benign stage one patients, but, you know, almost everyone else is included under the Natalie umbrella. And, um, you know, in particular, we, we all have these high-risk node negative patients, maybe a T3N0 or high-grade T2N0, where you, you just want to give them more, but they don't fit monarchy. And so I really think that that's a population of patients that I'm particularly interested in um, ex expanding my use of adjuvant CDK4-6 and including ribocyclob as part of that. And of course, you know, what I liked about the ribocyclob presentation for San Antonio is the first time we saw the data, 80% of the patients were still taking drug. So it's really hard to say, is it helping because they're still on it. The next presentation we've seen now, I think there's only 20% of people still taking drugs. So we are gradually, with more maturity, seeing the kind of longer-term impact. And I think that's going to be a key thing to pay attention to as we continue to see updated data from uh, the Natalie study. And, you know, that carryover effect was seen with adjuvant tamoxifen. It was amazing when we saw it, and that's a big part of why it had the benefit. It was usually lower risk. Stephanie, you had a thought? Yeah, I just wanted to add, you had, you had asked what it's going to take to see us start utilizing this more widely. And, and for me in clinical practice, I feel like my patients with hormone receptor positive are told by the radiologist that does their biopsy and their primary care doctor or gynecologist that calls them with their result and the surgeon that they meet first over and over and over again that they have good cancer because they, they've been sort of conditioned to hear that hormone receptor positive breast cancer is good. And we know that's not true, right? We have seen that that Pan New England Journal of Medicine article where the risk of recurrence at 20 years with lymph node negative breast cancer or N1 disease is still kind of astronomical. And so I think that it's going to take kind of a societal shift led by us, the medical oncology community, talking about what the risk of this disease really is. And then that has to be countered weight by a, a point that you brought up, Neil, of the financial toxicity. And of course, we've seen shifts where, you know, maybe now Medicare is going to start negotiating some cost. I'd love to see some CDK4-6 inhibitors go into that. Palbo is going to go generic. Um, and so maybe we're going to start to see some ability for us to grapple with the cost of these drugs as a society as well. Yeah, I hear that same kind of story from the lung people. They walk in and say, oh, guess what? You have EGFR mutation. You've got a, you won the lottery, except, you know, it's still metastatic disease. Anyhow, yeah. the one other a, a point about this, Erica, is kind of getting the patient through therapy. And I'm curious what your experiences are. We saw some data that were very encouraging that dose reduction does not, you know, imp doesn't look like it impacts the benefit from adjuvant abema. Uh, how do you deal with diarrhea? Do you uh, treat people preventively? Uh, what, what are the issues in getting people through therapy? 
Yeah, so that's a really important question and, you know, something we really are working on daily in, in clinic. Um, it's important to know with abemacyclib that the diarrhea side effect, which is the one that is was most common to lead to um, dose holds, dose reductions, dose discontinuations in monarchy, tends to happen early. And so usually within the first six to eight weeks or so is when the diarrhea will peak and then it burns out a bit and it can still be episodic over the rest of the two years, but the worst of it is in the beginning. It's very important to educate your patient so that they're prepared that you know this can happen but it's it's gonna you're gonna get over it and also to tell people to be aggressive about their use of Imodium. If somebody with max medical support is still having trouble, then we can feel very comfortable with a dose reduction um, that we're going to maintain, ho hopefully maintain efficacy, but be able to keep the patient on drug. Um, we recently launched a, a trial at Dana-Farber and throughout the Dana-Farber network. Um, this is called the TRADE study that's looking at a short dose escalation of abemacyclib for patients who are onboarding to adjuvant abemacyclib. Just within the first couple months, gradually increasing the dose to try to overcome that early diarrhea period and get people kind of safely and securely into the rhythm of things. Um, and so the, the, that trial is currently open and accruing, and we hope that might provide a new paradigm for how we can dose the drug. Until that's ready, I'm, I'm not recommending to do it, but um, it is something that you know I hope will improve the experience for patients. So one more early stage paper, and I'm sorry, uh, chat room, we'll get to you soon. We're getting, getting chat room, everything, we're getting behind, et cetera. But I love this paper, Serena 3. I mean, uh, window of opportunity study uh, looking at this uh, oral surge, Stephanie, and uh, all about the translational data, which is spectacular, I think. But anyhow, what's the bottom line, what they saw? Yeah, so this trial is looking at camazestrin in a window of opportunity trial. We talked way at the beginning of this recording about um, the the SIRDs and SIRMs that are up and coming. Camazestrin is one of those. And this trial took patients who knew they had breast cancer and had a surgery scheduled and said, hey, you know what, while you're waiting for surgery here, take this pill. Um, it gave it at three doses, 75 milligrams, 150 and 300, and compared their diagnostic biopsy with their surgical specimen and said, look, did your estrogen receptor degrade? Did the drug do what we said it did? Did your KI-67 reduce? Does the drug stop proliferation of cancer? And lo and behold, camazestrin does what we think it does. Um, regardless of the dose, 75, 150, 300, we saw reduction in estrogen receptor alpha. And regardless of um, the duration of therapy, five to seven days or 12 to 15 days, we saw both degradation of estrogen and reduction in KI-67. I think that this is, um, you know, exciting sort of proof of principle. It gives us confidence in dose reduction for SIRDs in development. It gives us confidence that we're going to be able to see um, reduction in tumor volumes in the metastatic setting with these drugs. And it gives us, you know, optimistic um, data that these drugs might be effective in a neo adjuvant setting or even, you know, in the adjuvant space because they're so effective at, at targeting their target. 
So maybe we can do an extra hour here today. Are you two free? Just kidding. But uh, I'll just say two, I'll just say two words about this study. Love it. It is great. I would love to see more studies. I'm sure there's more coming in now. Let's talk about metastatic disease. I brought this up earlier, but let's jump into it. Again, uh, uh, Erica's big discussion point for a number of years, keeping things going back and forth. Where are you and where are we today about choice of CDK in the first-line setting? Yeah, this has been a hot topic for quite a while. Um, you know, we have seven large phase three randomized trials in the first line and pretreated setting uh, for metastatic hormone receptor positive disease, looking at the three CDK4-6 inhibitors. These are all positive studies. They all improve progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of about 0.5. So for many years, we've said they're all basically very similar drugs and they're interchangeable. It's when we look at overall survival where we've seen this differentiation and a thought of maybe they're not all the same drug. Um, as we can see in this, the images, the uh, studies using ribocyclib, the Mona Lisa series of studies, all had positive outcomes in terms of overall survival. And I think that has led to some um, shifts in our treatment patterns. Many of us are now selecting ribocyclib as the partner of choice when we are beginning patients on aromatase inhibitor and CDK4-6 inhibitor. In contrast, the trials that used um, palbocyclib, the Paloma trials, were not positive studies. And those ones um, led to some of our changes away from palbocyclib for what it's worth. What we saw at San Antonio was updated overall survival for the Monarch 3 study, which is the first line abemocyclib study, which has been presented before in an immature form. And now this is reaching maturity. And this was presented by Matt Getz. Um, what we saw in this study was that although the patients who received abemocyclib as part of their first-line therapy had what I think of as a pretty dramatic improvement in overall survival, over a year prolongation in overall survival, this did not technically meet the criteria for statistical significance as designed by the trial. Now, I'll point out the, the Monarch 3 trial was the smallest of the first-line studies, it was a two-to-one randomization um, and had the lowest statistical power to show overall survival benefits. So it really wasn't set up to show this finding. That being said, we do see this 13-month improvement in overall survival. This was seen also in patients with visceral disease, which is a group of patients that we sometimes think uh, abemocyclib might be a little more appropriate for. And Dr. Getz also presented updated progression-free survival data, continuing to show this really dramatic improvement in progression-free survival. And I think what's very interesting, and this is eight-year follow-up of the study, is that at this moment, eight years in, one in five patients has not progressed. We all have these people in our clinics, people who started Abema when the drug became approved, and they are carrying on with disease stability. So this is a very active drug. And... Um, you know, I, I think I, I'm getting asked, you know, am I changing anything? Am I not giving a Bema? And I would say I, I still feel like this is a very active drug for us. If I have to go by the data, I, I will pick ribocyclib as my CDK4-6 of choice in the first-line setting. But if the patient can't take ribocyclib for some reason, a uh, cardiac issue, a uh, liver issue as a, the that drug can cause QT prolongation or LFT abnormality, I will select abemocyclib as my treatment of choice because I, I really do feel that these are quite strong data. And, you know, getting back to palbocyclib, there was a very interesting um, kind of rapid update that was presented from a trial called Parsifal Long. Parsifal is an older study that was a randomization between aromatase inhibitor and palbocyclib or fulvestrant and palbocyclib. And the results of Parsifal showed that both arms performed very well. There was no difference in the endocrine partner. Um, what the um, 
leaders of that trial did is they created a follow-on study where they just followed the patients combining the arms to see how they did. And what they reported at San Antonio was that the overall survival in Parsifal long for these patients treated with palbociclib was 65 months. That is essentially identical to what we see in Monarch 3 and Mona Lisa 2. And it, I think it raises the question of whether palbociclib also has this overall survival prolongation that just didn't come out in Paloma 2 for whatever statistical or study-specific reason. Um, I don't think that means we revive palbociclib into the first-line setting the way we did before necessarily, but again, I, I, I think many of us are feeling more interested in, in returning to palbociclib, and, you know, particularly in patients for whom that might be a good choice. Stephanie, uh, do you want to add your sort of art of oncology approach to this decision? Uh, Erica said if there's some factors that push her away from ribo, she'll go with abema um, with some constipation. Is that enough for you to do it? <laughs> yeah, I, the Monarch 3 data really didn't change anything for me in my utilization of abemaciclib. Ribo has been my sort of go-to first-line choice for metastatic hormone receptor positive CDK4-6 inhibitor um, just because of the weight of the data and the, the early overall survival data. But, you know, Monarch 3, I think the, the p-value is a statistical fluke. It is the smallest sample size. It was a two-to-one randomization scheme. And for those of you that attended San Antonio or have access to the online library, Bill Barlow did a, a lovely commentary in that uh, uh, trenches review. Uh, Bill's the swag uh, biostatistician on uh, how, how to think about biostat. So um, if you want to take a second and watch that, it's helpful. Um, and so I, you know, I think it just sometimes stats don't do what we need them to do. Um, one of my favorite quotes is Mark Twain, there's three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. And you know what? <laughs> Sometimes we get statisticed. Um, I still, you know, I, I shy away from Palbo, again, based on on the uh, where the data sort of fell. But I still use Palbo too, because you know what? It's a little bit better tolerated. And sometimes I have patients that have drug-drug interactions that make me unable to prescribe one of the other drugs. And when I mention diarrhea, their face lights up in fear and they say there's just no way. And and I do Palbo. And, and sometimes that's the right choice for my patient. And that's what the art of oncology looks like. So a uh, quick consult to you, Erica, from the chat room. Swati has a 37-year-old woman with ER-positive uh, breast cancer and intramedullary METS. CSF cytology is negative. Wants to know, do CDK, is there preferred CDK if there's CNS involvement? Uh, do the CDK penetrate you know, the CNS? Yeah, it's a, that's a tough case. Um, early on in the development of the CDK4-6 inhibitors, there were a series of studies done with abemaciclib monotherapy that looked at um, CSF concentration of abemaciclib with exposure and demonstrated penetration of the agent into the CNS. So among the CDK4-6 inhibitors, if I had to select which drug gets into the CNS the best, or at least which drug do we have data for, it would be abemaciclib. Um, I would hope that it, that patient might need some radiation um, with uh, with the CNS involvement, and then if they're first line, 
trying the endocrine um, would make sense. I, I would also add there was um, a pooled analysis of uh, TDXD studies at uh, ESMO demonstrating uh, an amazing um, amount of response seen with TDXD with either pretreated or untreated CNS disease. And so my interest in TDXD for that patient is also higher than it would be otherwise. Yeah, we had a wild case of uh, HER2 positive esophageal cancer with incredible response to TD TDXD. But okay, uh, so yeah, and she actually follows up, says no brain meds. This is first line, and the patient was sent for radiation therapy. Okay, Cappy Vasertib, I already alluded to the interesting schedule um, of this, Stephanie. Uh, Adam Brusky at San Antonio says he tell, tells his patients to take the weekend off. I'm wondering how compliance is going to be, incidentally, with this kind of schedule, which I don't remember hearing too much about schedules like this before. Uh, but anyhow, just got approved. Stephanie, uh, any uh, thoughts, uh, initial thoughts about the agent? Have you actually used it? I have not had a chance to prescribe Capovacertib yet. I know from uh, investigator meetings that um, the four days on, three days off uh, emerged based on some really strong data that they saw in their phase one, where when they were doing three days on, five days off versus five days on, two days off, they saw shifts in their tolerability. So I think that as you're considering this for your patients and thinking about their side effects, I would try to stay true to that four days on, three days off. Um, I don't remember, I don't want to misquote whether it was like more diarrhea one way and more cytopenia the other way, but um, I, I do think that that was evidence-driven. Um, and so, you know, probably Monday through Thursday on Friday, Saturday, Sunday off um, in a traditional uh, three-day weekend kind of strategy um, is going to be successful for our patients. And then just just remembering that patients that have AKT or sorry, patients with um, P10 or AKT mutations are going to be eligible in addition to patients with PIK3CA mutations, which means we're all going to have to go back through all of those um, genomic profiles we've uh, ordered over the last, you know, several years and made notes in our records that the patient does not have a PIK3CA mutation. Now we have to go back and say, wait, did they have P10? Did they have AKT? Um, because potentially, again, this expands that bag of tricks we can choose from for our patients. So, uh, Erica, Karen Green. Hey, Karen. I always love seeing Karen in the chat room. Wants to know, the patient has a PIK3 mutation, no diabetes. Would you do CAPI or Alpalisib? So, um, you know, I think that's a great question. And, you know, both of these agents have now shown positive data in pretreated patients. Um, you know, the Capitello 291 study is quite modern. This is a study of patients with advanced disease. At least half of them had had prior CDK4-6 inhibitor therapy. Um, a, a number of them had uh, visceral involvement. So I think it really reflects a modern practice. Also, an important difference between um, Capitello 291 and Solar One, which is the study that led to Alpalisib approval, is that the Capitello study did allow patients who had diabetes, not on insulin, or hemoglobin A1C less than eight. So that's much broader than what was allowed in Solar One. 
um, what we saw is that in the patients with the pathway alteration, there was a um, significant improvement in progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.5. Um, now, this was positive in the overall population, hazard ratio 0.6, but the improvements from 3.1 months to 7.3 months was really seen mostly in the, the pathway altered. And this is what's led to the very recent approval of this agent. I think the very important differentiator is the toxicity profile. We do know with Capivacertib that we can see diarrhea, and that occurs in almost the majority of patients, although only about 10% with like grade 3 diarrhea. Um, the official safety data that's presented, I think, underestimates rash, and both Dr. Graf and myself have seen some of the data that's looked at kind of combining all the different ways that people describe rash and showing that the, the rate of all grade and grade 3 rash is higher than what I think we've initially seen. But importantly, the rates of hyperglycemia are much lower. And remember, some of these patients had diabetes, and the rate of grade 3 hyperglycemia was only 2%. It's like 50% in solar 1 if the patient had something getting close to diabetes. And for me in, in practice, I, I think the hyperglycemia has really been one of the most challenging side effects to try to manage and one that has had such a detrimental effect on quality of life in patients. You know, uh, with, with diarrhea and rash, we know how to manage this. And when I give Capivacertib, I'm probably going to give people prophylactic antihistamine to prevent rash. I'm going to do a lot of education about diarrhea. I'm going to have my, my ONN talk to that patient every week and make sure that they are on target with toxicity management. But you know, I, I think that um, I am interested to use this drug in practice now, and, and I'm going to uh, probably be prioritizing this for my patients. I'm cautiously optimistic about the hyperglycemia. I mean, again, I, th I think Erica outlined nicely that the Capitella 291 population is just maybe a little bit healthier than the Solar 1 population was, which may account for the hyperglycemia differential. Um, we have an oral therapies clinic that has some lovely algorithms about, you know, what happens when a patient starts an oral chemotherapeutic, what labs they have at what interval, phone checks versus APP visits versus MD visits. And it's, you know, just it, lickety split, which is which is great for uh, my clinical practice. But we are going to be managing our cap of assertive patients the same as our patients with Apolisib in terms of frequency of blood glucose checks initially, um, just because I think that as we treat patients with cap of assertive who are obese, insulin resistant, pre-diabetic, uh, more in line with my patient population than perhaps the trial population, I'm worried that I'll see a slightly higher rate of hyperglycemia. I think we see that with so many of our targeted agents that once we use them in the real world and in our real patients, the toxicity profile may end up being a little different than what we saw in the trials. Absolutely. So we've already talked a bit about uh, oral surds, and uh, uh, you reviewed this, Erica, and of course the players uh, right now that seem to be most prominent and the ones that you reviewed, Elicestrant, which of course is approved, Camisestrant, we were just showing that uh, laboratory study, the translational study, and Imlunestrant, which uh, is not only being studied in monotherapy, but also in combination. This was a, a paper with Obama, but I think it's been looked at with other agents. So Erica, can you just sort of give us the bottom line uh, about what you see in terms of efficacy and tolerability and what differences, if any, seem to exist between these agents? 
Well, the, our approved agent is Elisestrant, uh, which is an oral SERD, and this approval came from the Emerald study. This was a study of uh, pretreated patients. All of them had had prior CDK4-6 inhibitor. All of them had had prior endocrine therapy, including about 30% with prior fulvestrant. So, you know, it really reflects what we see in practice. Patients are randomized to receive Elisestrant monotherapy versus investigator choice endocrine monotherapy. So there's no targeted partner here. It's just the single agent. The um, overall results of the study showed what many of us had considered a somewhat modest improvement in progression-free survival with the use of Elisestrant. But a subsequent follow-up analysis um, has, has, I think, really highlighted who benefits. This was a subset analysis done looking at outcome based on duration of prior CDK4-6 inhibitor. And what we see is that the patients who were on their prior CDK4-6 inhibitor for longer, for example, for a year or more beforehand, had a much bigger benefit from LSSTRANT with an improvement in their PFS from um, about two months with uh, standard of care or for, for the provider choice to almost nine months with LSSTRANT. I don't think this is selling us something magical about CDK4-6 inhibitor. I think the duration part really refers to maintenance and, and retaining endocrine sensitivity, that if your patient has an ESR1 mutation and they have retained endocrine sensitivity, they may benefit from the use of LSS-Strand. Um, we saw a subset analysis uh, at San Antonio that I thought was really interesting looking at outcomes in the Emerald study based on different clinical pathologic features or different mutational status. The one that really jumped out to me was patients who have both ESR1 and PIK3CA because those are the two actionable mutations in breast cancer for which we have targeted therapies. And if you see both of those, which should you pick? Should you pick the oral SIRD or should you pick the PI3 kinase inhibitor? And what was seen in this analysis was that all the subgroups they identified benefited from using LSS-Strand instead of the uh, provider choice endocrine. The benefit seen in the PIK3CA mutant population was a little more modest. Uh, they, it went from about two months to about five months. So it's a little less than the other groups. And you know, we know if there's a PIK3CA mutation, that means a little bit more resistance. But that group benefited. And if I have my patient with both mutations, and if they have, let's say, relatively low volume disease or relatively slow growing disease, I'm going to pick the LSS strand before I move them to the, you know, honestly more toxic PI3 kinase inhibitor. If that patient has a little bit more going on, then I really might want a doublet. And I'm really looking forward to seeing data from um, ongoing studies, including a trial called Elevate, that's looking at LSS-Strand with targeted combinations. Because I, I think the era of endocrine monotherapy is kind of behind us a bit, and I'd really like to be using LSS-Strand with combinations. So uh, I was mentioning the issue of the other SIRDs. Uh, here's some data from Serena, too, looking at Camusestrin. Any differences in terms of what you see there, for example, compared to Elisestrin? So this was a study randomizing uh, pretreated patients to get fulvestrant monotherapy or different dose levels of camisestrant. And um, uh, these were uh, patients, many of whom had had prior CDK4-6 inhibitor and pretreated. Um, the overall analysis showed that the camisestrant patients in the ITT population did better than fulvestrant monotherapy um, with an improvement from about 3.7 months to about 7 months. Um, but the, the bigger benefit was seen in patients who had an ESR1 mutation, which again, we think is the biomarker um, of selection for oral SIRDs. And in those patients, there was a more substantial improvement in progression-free survival that really wasn't seen in patients with um, ESR1 wild type. So 
you know, we await more data um, with camazestrin uh, uh, in the um, uh, first-line Serena 4 study. We also have all of these drugs moving into the adjuvant setting, um, including uh, uh, another oral surge, Giridestrant. We have two adjuvant studies with camazestrant, a very large study with imlunestrant. And it's really exciting to think about how this big category of endocrine therapies could completely enter our treatment paradigms. And, and as Dr. Graf said, is, is an important tool in the toolbox or trick in the bag that we can have available for people. You mentioned combination. I noticed there was this paper that uh, you went through looking at imlunestrant with abema. I think there's another one with uh, uh, PIC3 or uh, AKT. Uh, what, what's been seen in these? It looks like at least with the abema, reasonably well tolerated. Any thoughts about these, this kind of a combination, Erica? Yeah, there were cohorts from the EMBER study, which is a multi-cohort um, phase one trial that uh, is led by our friend Kamal Javeri. And um, she presented some really interesting data from that study. There was one cohort of patients presented who had all had prior CDK4-6 inhibitor and then went on to get um, imlanestrin and showed um, that those patients had a median progression-free survival of about seven months. Now, when we give fulvestrant in this setting, we sometimes see a PFS of like two months. And to see seven months, it was really robust. She also showed combinations of imlanestrin and abemacyclib or imlunestrin, abemacyclib, and AI, so like a triplet. And in both of those settings, there was a, a very prolonged progression-free survival, which you know, we would expect with the, the combinations. But what I think is really interesting is imlunestrin can cause some diarrhea. We know abemacyclib can cause some diarrhea. But what she was able to show is that the combination together did not cause uh, substantial diarrhea, that it was manageable. And I felt really encouraged to see that data that we can continue to think about combinations together. So just a couple of words about antibody drug conjugates. Again, I refer you to both of these great presentations for more details. Tonight, we're just kind of picking out a few points of interest and getting you interested to watch those presentations. So Stephanie, we saw at ESMO more data from the Destiny 04 uh, trial with TDXD, HER2 low. What's your bottom line right now in ER positive metastatic disease when you uh, generally uh, introduce uh, a TDXD, and if there are regulatory issues aside, would you be using it earlier? I, you know, I think that for me, the takeaway for Destiny Breast 4 is obviously this is a landmark study. Um, knowing if your patient is HER2 low is is critical, um, is something that should be noted early and often as you're thinking about your treatment options for patients. But I think for, for me, if anything, what I would say is that in the hormone receptor positive HER2 low space, I would continue to push those other lines of hormonal therapy. I would be using a CDK4-6 inhibitor, a PIK3-CA agent, a ESR1 agent prior to introducing IV therapy. Of course, IV therapy comes with very significant toxicity, very different side effect profiles. Um, and I think that, again, we want as many options as we can for our patients. So don't underestimate the value of oral therapy. Um, and I I, right now I'm using it guidelines-based after one prior line of uh, systemic chemotherapy. We're, of course, waiting on uh, the next trial, looking at moving uh, HER2 low therapy um, earlier in lines of therapy, and we'll continue to see how that strategy plays out, um, both in hormone receptor positive and hormone receptor negative HER2 low breast cancer. 
So a final comment from Erica in your practice outside of a trial setting, metastatic disease, ER positive, HER2 low, what comes first, TDXD or uh, sasituzumab? And any thoughts in your experience with dado Potamab, Deroxdecan, uh, the lung people are also starting to figure this one out. I'm curious, uh, particularly what you've seen and experienced in terms of mucositis with that agent. Yeah, so, you know, we have an embarrassment of riches here with multiple antibody drug conjugates, and they're all kind of like interchangeable modular units, and some of them target trope 2, like sazituzumab or dado, and then some of them have uh, a TDXD or the DDXD payload, and so... You know, I think the big challenge that's coming up for us is how do we sequence all of this? You know, in my practice, I prioritize TDXD over sazituzumab. Um, if I'm at a point in time where there's the choice, I, I find that the um, uh, survival and PFS data from Destiny Breast 4 is so compelling. And, you know, for those of us who were at the um, plenary at ASCO last year, you know, I think we all had goosebumps and tears and, you know, it was just amazing. Um, and so, you know, I think it's just such a, a, a transformative agent in our space. But then the question is, you know, when the patient progresses, is the disease resistant because the HER2 has mutated and it is no longer a good target? Or has the, the cell itself become resistant to the DXD payload? And, you know, how do we know which of the agents, you know, assuming we are going to have more and more of these agents, would be the next one to sequence? There's going to be a whole spectrum of trials launched uh, in the very near future that are going to be looking at some of these sequencing questions, which to give first, how to look for resistance, how to identify which would be the next best agent. I'm really interested in the data. I think that the uh, data from Tropian Breast 01 was very provocative, but uh, mucositis is one of the key toxicities. And in that trial, patients are getting prophylactic steroid mouthwash, just like we do when we give Everolimus. And, you know, thank goodness we have a lot of tricks that we can use to help manage toxicities. But, um, you know, it's as, as Dr. Graf said, you know, all of these agents, while incredibly active, do come with side effects. And um, we really want to maintain our patients on endocrine therapy as long as we can before we make the jump. And I want to refer you to uh, Erica's presentation to learn more about patritumab deroxycan targeting HER3. That's also being used in other cancers, including uh, lung cancer. So we'll see uh, where things go with that. I want to thank uh, you so much, uh, Erica and Stephanie, for working with us today. Audience, thank you for attending. It feels good to be back now and kind of getting in the room, getting warmed up here for the beginning of the year. Uh, next week, we'll be out at the ASCO GI meeting, but it's all going to be online. We're starting out on uh, Thursday talking about colorectal cancer. Be safe, stay well, and have a great night. Thanks so much, Erica. Thanks a lot, Stephanie. Have a good one.